0: I was uh, going through some Christian websites this week, and I came upon some large churches and their celebrity pastors who are embracing critical race theory. Now, as a result, I boned up on critical race theory. I knew in practice what it is, and as they say, I boned up on it so you don't have to read about it, Okay. It is much as it has been reported in the conservative press. And critical race theory is basically that everything must be viewed through the prism of race. Everything, including church. It's that people even today are locked into historical positions of inequality due to systemic racism. Now, I saw a good definition or a good Application of systemic racism. Systemic racism is what you have when you have no real racism in your society. Then we can blame it on systemic, that it's always been there. It only goes one way, however. White is bad, and, well, white is bad, okay? Coca-Cola has introduced some uh, training, and at the end of it, and we're pretty diverse group here okay but at the end of it they said act less white that was their slogan act less white um I don't know how to do that okay and if we put any other race in that phrase you would say it's racist it's sad to see this coming to our churches uh and we're about to see why but it these were our large churches. One of them, one of these churches, and I'm not going to tell you where they, who they are. I'll tell you that they're in major cities, though. Now, one of them is a 14,000-member church. Uh, attendance every week of uh, 14,000, which is several times the attendance of this church, right? So we, we know it's a bigger church. It's bad enough to see the acceptance of critical race theory in our secular society, but to see it in our churches is just appalling. My point here is not that what some misguided pastors are doing to avoid strife, appeasing popular culture, hoping that the uh, crocodile eats them last. First of all, today's culture is coming for all Christians. Okay? You can't escape it. If you appease the people that you think are going to cancel you, They'll just get you later. The culture of today's America will not be denied. And it's what I've been preaching for the last three sermons. Once again, I'm not going to tell you what I think about critical theor- race theory. And I'm not going to tell you what it really, you know, get into that. I'm going to share with you everything, and I do mean everything, that God says about race and different races. Along the way, we'll look at what uh, God thinks about the differences between social stratas, between freedom and slavery. And at last, we'll touch on reparations, which goes in hand in hand with critical race theory. And it's reparations for the great, 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 and I do mean that, grandchildren of slaves. There's been no slave. Savory in this country for 150 years. But first, I want to take you to, as I sometimes do, to 170 years ago. I'm going to take you to 1851. I've mentioned before that I'm from a pioneer Western family. In 1851, my great great grandmother, her name was Ann Johnson, she was six at the time, and she left on a wagon train trip from Missouri to Utah. Along the way, the family buried her younger sister. Times were tough. They ran into the usual trials on the trail. You may not know this about wagon trains, but you didn't white ride in the wagons. Uh, the wagons were for the infirm only. If you were firm, you walked across the country, and the wagons, the horses, were led. So. Six-year-old girl starts walking across the country from Missouri to Utah. At one point when she was resting in the wagon on the plains, an old Indian chief, and remember, I don't know how old they are, but that's her description. She wrote a short autobiography. But an old Indian chief uh, reached in with his spear to scare her in in the back of the wagon when she was resting, just teasing her. This was before... The Indians went on the warpath for being pushed out of their territory. In 1851, uh, travelers across the country were seen as, well, as an amusement in some part because they did so poorly and non-threatening. So the Indians were friendly back then. So little Anne grew up in Utah among Mormons and Indians. One day, a young Danish immigrant who had crossed the Hen A country in a handcart brigade, and uh, this is this is how silly I am. I was talking to a very Norwegian friend of mine about this, and mentioned that my great great grandfather had uh, pushed a handcart across the plains. And and my friend said, "Yep, yep, only a Dane would push a handcart across the plains." I did not know that you pulled them across the plains. I'm part Danish, so you'll forgive me for um, not knowing that also. I probably would have pushed my hand card across the plains Anyway, uh, she was, at this time, short of 15 years old when she was married to this young man. And they left Utah as soon as they could. It was 1864, and headed for California. In 1867, they got to Los Angeles. Now, during a bad storm, A French Jewish family, and it's a well-known family in Los Angeles history, uh, took care of them. Uh, uh, the family got sick, they had no food, and this French Jewish family, he was a, a store merchant, brought them food, took care of them. Later that year, after starting um, a store for miners in um, Soledad Canyon, outside of Los Angeles, on their way back to LA, their Wagon foundered in a stream, and they lost everything, no food. So they stopped in San Fernando at the home of a, a black man and a Mexican, his Mexican wife and asked if they could be fed, and they were fed and sent on their way. Later, in uh, 1868, they moved to the San Susana Mountains of Chatsworth, where they were the only English-speaking family in the San Fernando Valley. Their neighbors were Indians and Mexicans who had been there much longer than they had ever been there. Anne's best friend was Mrs. Lopez of Lopez Station. It's another historic name, who she described as a fine Spanish family. Fifteen years later, when the last of her daughters was born, this is 1883, Indians came from as far away as Santa Barbara to see a baby with blue eyes. They'd never seen that before. My point in this excursion is to point out that people are people and they're not races, okay? My family lived among the Indians, among Mexicans, among Spanish, among blacks. People in the West got along with each other because they had to. They had to take care of each other. There was very little, if any, racial discrimination in the West. Uh, This is the main reason that When Branch Rickey, the uh, Los Angeles Dodger general manager, was looking to integrate his team, he came to California to look for a black baseball player. Most of the first black baseball players in the major leagues were Californians because they had not been subject to Jim Crow laws and thus become angry. So Jackie Robinson was a Pasadena man. Uh, in fact, one of my uncles, not from this side, but another, was his baseball coach and track coach at uh, Pasadena, Junior, uh, Pasadena High School, which later became Pasadena Junior College. So with that as a background of people getting along and treating each other as people, let's see what God says about race and relations between the races. Okay, ready? Ready? We're done. God is entirely unconcerned with race. He makes no no distinction between races. The only distinction he makes about man is this, and it's from Genesis 5. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God, male and female. Uh, Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when he created them male and female is the only distinction God makes among men the concept of race is a creation of man and fallen man at that but since I told you I tell you everything God says about race here goes okay and you're going to have to extrapolate from this Uh, In Jeremiah 13.23, Jeremiah asks a question, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard, his spots? This is an observation that obliquely talks about an Ethiopian without making any judgment on him, good or bad. We're assuming it was a black man. Most Ethiopians, probably all Ethiopians were. So we've got that one simply that an Ethiopian cannot change his color. Neither can man do good who is accustomed to doing evil. That's the rest of the quote. Then we have Acts 9, chapter 8, 26 through 39. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went... And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Again, there's only the mention of the man's nationality. So it's implied that he's black. But nothing else, good or bad. Well, actually, there is something else good. The man heard the news, was baptized, called on the name of the Lord. Became a Christian. So that's the good news. The next one is from the Song of Solomon. So cover your kids' ears. No. This is from the P the G-rated portion of Song of Solomon, okay? And it's the first chapter, it says, I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Cater, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark. Because the sun has looked upon me, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. The King James Version doesn't use dark. It says black. Um, I don't know if she was truly black. She says that she was kissed by the sun, that tending her vineyards had uh, tanned her. So we don't know her so-called race. Now we come to the passage that started this series of four sermons. If you want to call this a series, I'm not positive how much they've been connected, but it's what set me down this path. It's from Numbers 12, 1 through 16. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Uh, Cush was the area of Ethiopia. Cush was a son of Ham. Uh, They are said to be the father of the different peoples, the Caucasians, the um, uh, black, and the, I didn't write this down. I think it's the Indians. But anyway, they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. So they go on and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So Moses has married a Cushite woman, an Ethiopian, a black woman. And we don't know if Miriam is upset because she's lost some, some sway with Moses or if she doesn't like the woman because she's black. We don't know what the reason is. But it says, and the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. I don't think I'd want to hear that. OK, I don't think I'd want the Lord to say, OK, you three <laughs> over here now. But that's what uh, God says to them, Uh Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. One commentator I read said, Said Miriam, "You don't like this black woman that Moses married. You, you think white is better? Let's see how you like being really white." I'm not going to say that that's the interpretation, but that is right there in the text. Miriam was white as snow when he left, and Moses was horrified. You can read the rest for yourself, but, uh, but. Was Miriam upset that Moses had married a Cushite woman? Well, it says that she was. Was she jealous because the woman's out uh, moving her out of her comfort zone? Maybe. We don't know if that's the case. We're just grumbling about Moses' position. So if God isn't concerned about race, okay, what is he concerned with man about? The story of the Bible is of families. He calls uh, Abraham. Then he calls Jacob's family. uh, This this is not chronological, folks. But he calls Jacob's family. He's dealing with families. And then he deals with tribes. And then he, uh, you know, the uh, Israelites are called the tribes of Israel. And then he talks of, deals with tribe nations, entire nations of tribes when God brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan, he wanted them to be apart from the people already in the land, but the reason for this was not a racial one. Instead, it was cultural and religious. He did not want the Israelites intermingling with idolatrous nations. Now, except for the fact that the Jews weren't acting because of race, the way they were acting towards other people. Uh, if it weren't for that fact, you could say that the Jews were just about the most racist people in all of creation. The Jews viewed Gentiles as not, not someone you would even talk to. Um, in Acts 10, 10.1, 10, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, A centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, this is a Roman centurion. He is a Gentile. He's somebody Jews would not talk to. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Carnelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, "Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a more memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel spoke to him, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a d- devout soldier from among those. Who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Java. Now, the Apostle Peter was already moving away from the strict laws of the Jews. He was staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Something he would never, he would never have entered it when he was a Jew, but now that he is a Christian. He's staying at Simon the Tanners touched dead animals. Jews were not allowed to touch dead animals. A tanner touched dead animals every day of his life. He was perpetually unclean. Peter would not have gone into that house, but now he's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Now, to prepare Peter for bringing Gentiles into God's family, God puts Peter into a trance where he commands... Peter to eat food from creatures known to be unclean. Birds, shellfish. He sees them coming down in what appears to be a blanket. And God says, Peter, take and eat. And Peter, we know Peter. Peter is impetuous. Peter sort of fluctuates a little bit back then. Peter says, no, Lord, I can't eat this. So God tells him three different times, Peter, eat this food. At this point, Cornelius, uh, his men find Peter who accompanies them to Caesarea. Cornelius greets him. And Peter enters the house to talk to the Gentiles gathered there. Verses 28 through 29 said, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Okay, it's against Jewish law for him to do what he's doing. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And he says, I ask why you sent for me. Jews didn't just not associate with Gentiles. Peter says it was unlawful to associate or even visit someone of another nation. And then Peter says this. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. From any nation, anyone who does right is and fears God is acceptable. This is God's standard for all of humanity. There is no racism with God, but everyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable. This is the standard. I covered this uh, passage a few weeks ago, but it's worth noting here. James 2 says, "Uh, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, "Ah, you stand over there or sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James, brother of Jesus, is saying, hey, God doesn't look on riches like you look on riches. The rich man is not more honorable than the poor man. In Romans 10, 8 through 13, Paul says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the world of the Christian, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says it again in Colossians 3 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You think he's trying to make a point here about uh, equality of people. And that brings us finally to today's featured passage that I used. I could have used any one of these in the In the bulletin, but it's Galatians 3, 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So we pretty well covered that there, in Christ there is no Jew and Greek. Here Paul says that there is no male or female. And you might say, what gives, Mike? You just told us that's the one difference. God does notice in men. But that's with men. And it's not with Christians. You know that in the Jewish world, women did not enjoy a high station in life. Indeed, the testimony of a woman was not acceptable in a Jewish court of law. They could not go into a law and testify. They were considered unreliable and were truly second-class citizens. And then Jesus came and everything changed. Women feature large in Jesus' life. In the New Testament, Jesus comes to a village and goes to the house of Mary and Martha, and, and Martha is is running around trying to make preparations and, and Mary goes and sits at the feet of Jesus just to listen to him. Martha comes and complains to Jesus and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset at many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus paid attention to the women. The, I didn't write this down, but the women at the well, a Samaritan. Samaritans were despised by Jews. They were ethnically the exact same people. But the Samaritans had fallen away from Judaism and then trying to get back, they had created a fake Judaism. They They... Had everything, they had the high priest, they had they made up their own, and the Jews despised them because they did not truly come back to Judaism. They faked it. And yet at the well, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, he has compassion for her. Later on in Acts we see Priscilla, who was a co worker of Paul. And that brings us to the last part and uh, the prickliest part of what we're going to talk today. There is neither slave nor free. In Jewish law, slavery was legal, as you probably know, but it was more akin to, say, indentured servitude that we had in colonial uh, United States. Exodus tw- uh, 21, 1 through 11 says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, And remember, a Jew could sell themselves into slavery for a time. There are many reasons to do that. You've lost all your money. You weren't one of the sons who inherited. Might sell yourself into slavery. But here is the rule of slavery. It's from... Gee, I didn't write it down, but that's okay. We'll find it someday. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So, a Hebrew can only be a slave for six years. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's. And he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Goes on a little bit. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... That doesn't sound good, does it? When a man sells his daughter as a slave. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she, does, if she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself he shall not dim- diminish her food, her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. That sounds a whole lot more like a man who is arranging for a marriage for his daughter. But they say it's a slave so we'll go with that. Now there are Those rules for Hebrew slaves, those weren't the rules for Roman slaves. Roman slaves were property. They had no personhood. Most would never be freed. If you were a a Roman slave, you were a Roman slave until you died. They could face physical punishment and summary, which means, for no reason, execution. It's probably why the uh, the Apostle Paul reacted the way he did in his letter to Philemon about Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. He says in the letter, and he starts it off like he starts off any letter, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister in Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets to, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is, that is in us for the sake of Christ, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So here's, here's the nice part, um, as Paul does with the Corinthians, he, you know, butters them up a little bit, gives them, gives them a little bit of praise. And then he says, accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. That was a pun on Paul's part, by the way. It's in parentheses, but it was a a pun. He's trying to trying to keep it a little bit light I'm, I'm sending him back to you sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own free will hmm. for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, uh, it's assumed that he had stolen from Philemon. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. Paul wanted him to do it of his own free will, and of course, uh, being a Roman and a slave owner, he could do whatever he wanted. I don't think Paul left him a whole lot of choice in the matter. But Paul was trying to make sure that Onesimus was treated as a Christian brother should be. There's a criticism of the Bible and also Christianity that they both sanction slavery. I'd say rather that the Bible recognizes that slavery exists. I'd also argue that Paul sees slavery as incompatible with the Christian walk. Those pushing the critical race theory of today also claim that the United States was founded in sin. Original sin of slavery, the 1619 project, was pushed by the New York Times to reinforce this notion, calling the year 1619, the year the first slave came to America, as the true founding date of the United States. But unnoticed by that newspaper is that before 1619, indentured servants, people who had, in effect, sold themselves into slavery for a period of time. It was either seven years or 14 years. You could do either one. They were already in North America and, indeed, outnumbered slaves in the New World for well over a century. There were more indentured slave uh, servants than slaves in the United States until the founding of the country. Those who say that the United States had a foundational flaw miss the fact that every nation from the beginning of time had slavery. That did not make slavery good, it did not make slavery right. It just was. England ended slavery in its nation in 1833, and less than 30 years later, the United States fought a civil war over the issue. 750,000 men died in that war. Do you know how many slaves were in America at that time? Four million. 750,000 Americans died in the fight to free four million slaves. 3% of the US population died in that effort. No other country in world history has sacrificed that much to do what is right. Now, I started this sermon with the story of a little six-year-old girl leaving Missouri in in a wagon train. She ended up living out her life in a corner of the San Fernando Valley. I grew up there. I often visited her ranch. Her ranch was still in my family. Uh, One of my great uncles lived on a portion of it. But I never knew her. In fact, my dad never knew her. My grandfather was in his teens when she died. I mention this because another thing that is uh, being trust along with critical race there is reparations for peoples whose ancestors were slaves there have been no slaves in the United States for over 150 years that would make the last slave your if you had a slave ancestor your great 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 grandparent people are pushing for re- repayment for what happened to people they never knew and their. Parents never knew. And probably their grandparents never knew. So let me close with one last illustration. At the same time as that little six-year-old girl was moving across Missouri on her way to the West, another of my great-great-grandparents, that was a great-great-great, that's how I did the math, was also moving across Missouri. He settled in western Missouri on the border of what would be known as Bleeding Kansas. It was called Bleeding Kansas because Kansas' territory wanted to become a state. And there was a violent debate on whether it would be slave or free. This conflict spawned John Brown. That's where John Brown came from. Quantrell's Raiders were killing people along this border dispute between Missouri and, and Kansas. It also spawned, ultimately, the Civil War, because they could not settle this dispute without fighting. My grandfather was a slave owner. And I tell you that, and now, now I'm going to have to dig into my pockets. When the time came for the Kansas referendum on slavery, many slave-owning Missourians crossed the border into Kansas territory and rented property or just squatted on the land so they could vote to make Kansas a slave state. My grandfather's name was Joseph Collins Christopher and his name is found on the Kansas voter rolls. He crossed over the state line to vote. Case closed. To advocates of uh, critical race theory, I owe representation Reparations for my great-great-great-grandfather's slaveholding. The trouble is, is that history is a little more nuanced than people understand. People today don't do nuance very well. You see, my great-great-grandfather, Christopher, crossed into Kansas to vote against slavery as a slaveholder. In fact, he was a prominent and outspoken critic of slavery. And early in the Civil War, he paid for that stand with his life. Quantrell's raiders came to his farm, entered his house, shot him in the head in front of his 12 children and his wife. The only reason nobody else died was my younger great-great-grandfather, of whose name is part of my name, threw himself in front of the gunman and was shot in the chest and lost two fingers, and it's hereditary. Um, (laughs) Anyway, the rest of the family was spared. So I asked the question, does my family own reparations? We We lost the head of a household. Um, Did my grandfather pay the price himself? I also ask the question of those prominent pastors dabbling with the politics of race. Wouldn't your time be better used preaching the gospel? Wouldn't we as a nation be better off if instead of dividing over race, we were, as Paul said, neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female? Is this not what should be being preached in our churches instead of race theory? Wouldn't it be better if in our churches we couldn't all be one in the body of Christ? It's just a question. I like to ask questions. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we we pray for the church, and we pray for the church in this time when lies are being promulgated in the media, in the church, in society as general, about who people are and where their value lies. Lord, I pray that we as a church, we as a greater church, we as the bride of Christ can preach that there is no slave, no free, that there is no male nor female, there is no Greek or Jew, but we are all all one, all one in your family. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.